0: We have uh, just embarked on a new series in our ongoing effort to practice the way of Jesus together. Uh, if you're new to Van City, we believe very much that Jesus actually intended his disciples, that's most of us here this evening, I suspect that Jesus actually intended His disciples to pursue mastery of His teachings and of His lifestyle. For us, Jesus is not just some impossible ideal. He is the standard by which we adjust our entire lives, that we might be with Him, that we might become like Him, and that we might do the things that He did. So, every two months or so, we take on a new spiritual discipline, Or a new principle of emotional health. Both are essential in our journey of discipleship. And we go out into our communities, small groups that meet scattered across the city, and we give it a shot together. Last week, we began the profoundly broad practice of simply prayer. So if you weren't here, please go back and catch up on the podcast. If you plan to join us on this, it's important. Uh, we used what's often called the Lord's Prayer as a template, and we set out to approach prayer with the proper presuppositions, the proper framing when we actually sit down to pray. For instance, Jesus understood God to be his Father, and that was the first word of his mouth, out of his mouth in his famous prayer template, our Father in heaven so god is a father who is inherently good with good intentions toward you and i and interestingly jesus describes his father as being in heaven or in the heavens more literally and that word Uh, literally means sky or air. The point is not that God is in some far-off, inaccessible dimensions of clouds and robes, as, unfortunately, the phrase is commonly misunderstood. It actually means the exact opposite. In fact, that line can be translated, Our Father who is in the air. God is as close as the air all around you. Many of us realize this intellectually or doctrinally, meaning that if we were pressed... We would acknowledge belief in God's omnipresence. On paper, God is in all places at once. And yet, very few of us maintain this belief with any sense of ongoing awareness. Uh, I personally tend to imagine God's availability more like, say, my wife's availability. Meaning, I can readily access my wife, sure. I live with her, so there's that. That covers a huge swath of it. Um, When we set aside time to talk, we talk. Uh, we can also connect throughout the day via, you know, the, the, the thing that we all have that's draining our souls away, uh, you know, the phone calls. Uh, we still do that, by the way. You guys use that on the phone? You talk on the phone? It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, I suppose. But anyway, we connect on the phone or we can send text messages. So she is, in this sense, readily available and accessible to me. And it's great. I'm grateful for it. But she's not with me constantly, she doesn't share in my every single experience. In fact, many of them come secondhand or through my flawed retelling. So functionally, I think many of us imagine God the exact same way. We have our unique time set aside to be with Him, and we can also access Him when and if we see fit throughout, throughout our day. Maybe for some of you guys, uh, God is like a force ghost from Star Wars. You know, it was just sort of this wise apparition Uh, with with whom we can commune when we so choose, or or maybe he shows up uh, with unsolicited advice every now and again, um, or you can conjure him up by request. But Jesus, our teacher, seemed to understood God's presence quite differently. God is, according to Jesus, in the air or in the air all around you. He's as close as the air on your skin. He is omnipresent. He is in every place at all times. So it begs the question where does god go when we aren't talking to him is god like a a visiting relative with whom conversation eventually withers and you just sort of sit in the same room because there's nothing else to do so the talking's over and now you're just both sitting there weirdly Um, if god is always all around you what bearing should this have on the way that you pray if any is there some way to maintain awareness of god's omnipresence are we supposed to do that Uh, is it even possible to do that? So to answer all these questions, let's go to our teacher and our king, Jesus of Nazareth, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Watch this. There it is. Now I'm laughing. I can't do it. It'll just go everywhere. John 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my apprentices. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. To explain our ongoing connectedness to the Holy Spirit, or to what some of the New Testament authors call the Spirit of Jesus, Jesus himself employs this interesting metaphor of a vine and its branches and its fruit. Uh, One 16th century Jesuit priest I read this week wondered why Jesus selected a vine for this metaphor. Why not, say, a fig tree or an olive branch? One reason that has been posited is that this particular metaphor offers an image of a small branch with a tremendous amount of fruit. After all, to look at a grapevine... Uh, a fruitful grapevine anyway the grapes are what draw our attention another ri- reason might have been the contrast between a single vine and the multitude of branches that grow out of it or perhaps another reason could have been that the fruit harvested from a vine produces what the scriptures call uh, a blessing the sweet drink of wine i've never had it myself uh, but i do enjoy the occasional glass of welch's grape juice it's a luxury it's like the straight edge wine try it sometime or maybe i, I guess we're all going to try it in just a little bit Um, One reason could have been that uh, Jesus himself points out A vine requires the attention of someone else. He calls his father the gardener. Uh, A vine cannot tend itself, so to speak. So without care, uh, vines grow chaotically and without order or care to maintain their health and the branches that grow out of them. And remember, within this image, we are the branches that remain in the vine, connected to, drawing life from, and growing out from the vine, or else dead. Or in Jesus' hardcore words, thrown into the fire. That is, there is no time in which a living branch is not connected to and growing out of the vine itself this ongoing interconnectedness must be of some importance because jesus uses the word "meno," what some of your bibles translate as remains maybe some of them say abide he uses that word ten times in this single small teaching and notice the imagery isn't of a vine into which branches can come and go and connect for a periodic recharge or for encouragement Or for nourishment and then go on their way the branches remain in the vine remember he says it ten different times some of us read this passage and we interpret jesus to mean that we ought to maintain our obedience to jesus perhaps that's what it means to remain in him others assume it has something to do with the way that we do important things led under the direction of jesus like if you're making a big decision or navigating a complicated relationship remain in jesus so to speak But many great thinkers of the Christian tradition have come to understand that Jesus' image of the vine and the branches, his plea that we might remain in him, actually has everything to do with learning to maintain an ongoing awareness of the waking reality of God's presence at all times, always being in two places at once, eating breakfast and in the presence of the Father at the gym and in the Father's presence, at a movie theater, in the Father's presence, in conversation with a friend, in the Father's presence. Whether you're answering emails or it's your morning commute or your 9 to 5 or dealing with your insane parents or roommates or coworkers or toddlers in my case, all, all while simultaneously in the Father's presence. Paul, one of the primary authors of the New Testament, called this prayer without ceasing. Our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation. Uh, the medieval monk, Brother Lawrence, called it the practice of the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence's famously documented pursuit of constant connection to God uh, became this small book, The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a fascinating thing. Because in the 15th century, Brother Lawrence, uh, lacking the education to become a cleric, served instead as a, as a dishwasher in a French monastery. And there, he devoted his entire life to the practice of contemplative prayer or the practice of the presence of God, so consumed was this man by God's sustained intimacy that people would come from all over Europe and just watch him in his kitchen as he reveled in the Father's companionship. After Brother Lawrence died, his letters were compiled into a small volume in which he writes this, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Man, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, this is wildly different than my ordinary approach to prayer as almost entirely relegated to my morning routine, with some recurring touch points throughout the day or a week, often compelled by my wants or my needs as they arise. And I believe this Brother Lawrence fellow had become unsatisfied with bits and pieces relegated only to sacred times and sacred spaces, corralled with great focus and often frustrated attempts to stay the course, and he wanted something more. He seemed to realize that all this concentrated effort to squeeze a single sacred drop from an apple Seems very foolish when we look up to see that we've been standing in this endless orchard of ripe apple trees all along. In his book on contemplative prayer called Present Perfect, Greg Boyd says this: In modern Western culture, you've been brainwashed by what is called the secular worldview. And this view of the world, what's real, or at least what's important, is the physical here and now. When we're brainwashed by this worldview, we experience the world as though God did not exist, for we habitually exclude Him from our awareness. We may still believe in God, of course, but He's not real to us most of the time. Because of this, we go about our day-to-day lives as functional atheists. We may pray and worship God on occasion, but these are special times, isolated from our normal, secular, day-to-day life. So thoroughly are we brainwashed by the secular mindset that the very suggestion that we could routinely experience the world in a way that includes God strikes us as impossible. For Boyd, the idea that God is only accessible via access points of uniquely specific ritual and time is the illusion. The reality is that there is not a time in which the disciple of Jesus is not accessing God's unavoidable presence. Sadly, most of us live live our lives as though this paradigm were the other way around. And for this reason, I would argue that the vast majority of us hold to an understanding of prayer itself, at least at times, that is at best painfully incomplete and at worst entirely mistaken. And when we understand this, It has, I believe this very much, the power to unlock an entirely new, robust dimension of relationship with God himself. In essence, prayer is a word that we use to describe all of our experiences that are shared with God. Paul Miller, author of this great book, A A Praying Life, he calls prayer life with God. Prayer is a way of experiencing all of reality with God. And this is interesting because we tend to categorize experiences in one of two ways. They're either good or they're bad. That is, you know, a promotion at your work or a wedding or the birth of a child, those are good things. A flat tire or a breakup or, you know, someone that brings a small child into a movie theater, those are bad things. And yet... With a wide enough context, uh, and on a long enough timeline, experiences tend to defy simplistic categorization. Most experiences are neither all good nor all bad, but many shades of both in ways big and small, known or unknown, except for the kid in the theater thing. That's always bad, and you always sin when you do that, just so you know. Um, Thus, what, did I step on toes there? It's okay. There's grace for you here, but not on that. Thus... The inherent complication in the way that we pray is that we tend to preemptively organize our experiences into two such broad categories and then to present them to God after we've done the work. So this is bad. I need your help with this. This is good. Thank you. In this way, we are like, you know, I I imagined it like a a character in a movie that stands glassy-eyed before the tombstone of a loved one and they recall the events of a week or a year with... You know, a semi-scripted, one-way conversation sort of thing. Here's an update. You can't talk back, but here's everything. This was good. This was bad, and so on. As if prayer were nothing more than filtered updates in the context of a routine meeting. But when we share the whole of our experience with a loved one, we share in the great twisting intricacy of life itself. What I mean is that I don't stand before my wife, Abby, for 10 minutes at a time in the morning and say, hey, here's the update. My job is hard this week. Uh, can you please help me? My friend is sick. I'm worried about them, just so you know. Our kids are healthy. Great way to you know, help with that. We have food to eat and a house to live in. That's awesome. Cool. Okay, bye. And then I leave. Instead, our conversations are ongoing, and they're layered, and they're complicated. And one reason is because our life is shared. We understand that some good things have been costly, some bad things have been redeemed for good, that life is messy and chaotic, and that we've walked it together for more than a decade, and that ours is a conversation without end. And I don't just relay categorized experiences to Abby. I experience my reality with Abby. And that's what prayer is like. It's all of our experiences shared with God, and more so than any other person because we're with God all the time. And this is happening whether you realize it or not. The the enormous life-changing difference occurs when we learn to live in the ongoing awareness that it is true. If prayer is a way of understanding all of our experience as shared with God, then the disciplines of prayer, the things that we're going to get into with the practices, uh, asking for things, lamenting things, listening for things, all the disciplines of prayer are simply the means by which we wake ourselves up enough that we might learn to live in the truth that God is always there and always listening. Dallas Willard says it like this, The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones As we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, He will become the pole star of our inward being. Meaning, The disciplines of prayer simply train us to realize the countless ways in which God is speaking to and interacting with us throughout each moment of every day, but that often go entirely unnoticed. Ordinarily, those of us who practice things like, say, listening prayer, which is something that uh, we do before every gathering and during every gathering, we ask the Spirit to speak and then you wait and listen. Listen those of us who practice something like that with some regularity, we we create special arenas in which to operate. That is, we we sit quietly after the teaching or before the gathering or in times of silence and solitude in the morning or in the evening, whatever it might be. And those are wonderful. Please, by all means, keep those up. But even so, those disciplined moments are focused attention on a world that is ever-present and readily available at all times. Those times are not what creates the availability. They are our selected avenues of accessing that availability. So think of it this way. Uh, I'm, as some of you, I'm sure I've gathered by now, a, a movie person with, so with one or two exceptions, I almost never watch any new television show, and won't. Um, and I, <laughs> I believe it to be an inherently inferior medium. Uh, my wife is the exact opposite. She prefers the TV, the TV series. Uh, you know, the occasional new thing on whatever streaming platform. TV, it's a thing. Check it out. And the way that we enjoy our respective preferences is also wildly divergent. So I require a very specific setting. Man, that sounds so entitled. I prefer. I don't require. I prefer a very specific setting and ambiance, free of distraction, no lights, no phone, no talking. Uh, the right format, the right sound and transfer and screen dimensions and etc. in order to enjoy a movie. Otherwise, what are we doing? Just get out of here with that. Abby, on the other hand, will just throw some TV show on this tiny laptop screen and have the sound pumping out out of those awful little tinny speakers, you know, and she's walking around doing other stuff while it's playing in the background. I'm not here to judge, and yet I can't help myself. There it is. Uh, At any rate, She'll have some show going and she'll be sewing or working or making tea or whatever, and she'll claim to have gotten the gist of it uh, while readily admitting that there were extended periods during which she wasn't looking at the screen at all, depending on the show, I guess. And the TV show itself plays without interruption. It's there, it's accessible, it stays where it is. And there were times during that unbroken presentation in which Abby looks up and she listens closely, and she tracks with every beat of the narrative. And other times, the show just plays on, and she took decidedly less note of the specifics because she was doing something else. In the same way, God's speaking voice, His affection, His creative modes of conversation are all around us at all times, and we, as disciples of Jesus, are given the access key to that waking reality by God's Spirit, which is alive in us. And yet, because we are distracted... Because we live in the age of digital addiction, because we're busy, because we're imperfect, we have to use certain modes of disciplines and allocated time to look up and listen, so to speak. But God's intention was never for us to settle for that as the only way that we pray. God, who is the original artist, by His own design caters his communication quite creatively. Most of us experience God's presence and his voice in wildly different ways. Some of you uh, experience something like an emotional sensation when God speaks, and it's hard to describe. Others of you see pictures in your imagination. Others uh, of you have words or phrases that come to your mind when God speaks. And by using God's Spirit in us, we get to explore those nuances and those differences in fun, imaginative, life changing ways. It's what makes us unique as a community, as individuals, and as a community. In fact, God has instilled in every human being a certain deep seated desire, a longing to do exactly that, to access God's presence and His voice, to access God Himself. And yet, many of us seize that energy and we funnel it into areas of almost no consequence. We feel the desire for more, for substance, for purpose, but directing that energy in the direction it was intended seems too difficult or too complicated or too scary, or we simply don't know how to do it, so we use it to look at a screen instead. Or we just funnel it into some person, or we funnel it into a career, or a hobby, or to travel, or to learn, school, whatever it might be. And of course, the great human story is that without God, without some definitive higher purpose, the great human story in all its uh, Nietzsche-like glory, is that it all comes back empty. This is your life ending one moment at a time. But what would happen if we train ourselves to direct our innate desire for God, unobstructed, down the channel that leads to God's presence? Our Father who is in the air all around us what dallas willard is talking about the pole star of our inward being what if we understood prayer is not only select spaces for discourse for conversation but of all of our experiences as shared with god what if we often enjoyed extended periods of prayer in which no one says a word Mother Teresa uh, was famously asked what she said to God during her most meaningful times of prayer, to which she answered, I don't say anything, I listen. And uh, puzzled, the journalist pressed and said, okay, well then what does God say if you're just sitting there listening? And Mother Teresa smiled and replied, nothing, he listens. And if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. If I liken this sort of closeness with God to other more easily uh, understood experiences from our own lives, I think what we're actually getting at begins to come into focus. It's actually not that mysterious at all. Uh, I, I often catch my wife smiling at my son while he's running around and playing, and when he finally starts to settle down, she'll say, come here and snuggle with me. And then they'll sit together on the couch or whatever, and they don't say anything. They just sit there and snuggle. In fact, this morning, uh, he and I woke up first. She was still asleep, and we were wandering out into the kitchen. And I said, so do you want breakfast? And he said, uh, one second, Dada. And then he walked away, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess he's got stuff to do. And I'm in there, like, making coffee or whatever, and, and Beck comes back out. He's like, okay, I'm ready. I was like, what, what were you doing? He said, I went in there. I snuggled Mama for one minute, and now I'm back. I'm ready for breakfast. Uh, and I didn't hear anyone talking, so they're just in there doing the snuggle. Or I'll often ask uh, Abby to come sit with me in my movie room while I watch something that I've seen like a million times and doesn't, you know, require the right ambience while she's reading or doing something else. And it's just because I like to sit next to her, even if we're not going to be talking or sharing the movie per se. Or like many couples, uh, we, we cycle our way through the entire series of friends for the 10th time since we've been together, like a living cliche. And, uh, and sure, it's because we love friends, but we also love sitting there next to each other and being close and laughing at the same jokes that we've heard quoted for decades, but doing that together. I'm not sure that I have the steam to keep doing it by myself. Um, do we also have focused, deliberate conversation? Of course. It's really important. Do we also go on dates and take vacations and talk through heavy things and process together and ask things of one another yeah I hope so that's that's really important as well we try anyway even so there's something quite wonderful about just sitting together earlier uh, Katie was talking to me about um, the teaching my friend Katie and she called it shoulder time when you just sit beside each other and you do nothing but sit together no agenda no plan perhaps not even words just the closeness and the friendship that we share And in the Christian tradition, the often frowned upon term meditation simply describes thinking about the things of God. And you do this all the time when you read or study the scriptures, for example, if you do that, I hope, um, you meditate on holy things, so to speak. You concentrate or you dwell, you fill your mind with the things of God. In the practice known as contemplative prayer, we work to make that meditation an ongoing awareness throughout the day. an acknowledged and felt connection to the friendship of God at all times, even if you're in the kitchen washing the dishes. If we want to actually learn what it means to understand prayer as a way of experiencing all of reality with God, in order to experience that closeness, that sort of on-the-couch shoulder time with God himself, then we have to train to do so. Maybe one or two of you guys actually are experts in this already. If so, please come talk to me afterward. We have some work for you to do. But I'm assuming that most of us are on the same page and that we we have a lot of practicing to do to really get this. And that's, that's totally fine. We have to train. We have to give it a shot. It takes... Practice, it takes discipline. It won't happen with any meaningful sense of continuity by its own accord organically when you spontaneously feel like it. And so, as our next practice, as a church and community, we are going to begin something founded by Jesuit priests in 1540 and shared across the spectrum of the church since. It's called con- uh, contemplative prayer, practicing the presence of God. Now, I don't want everyone to freak out and think, what the heck, if you've been doing the practices with your community already or if you're new here and think, man, what the heck, week one was so easy. It was just like 10 minutes to pray. That was fine. Or I just got here. What are they doing? They're already doing the dishwashing, thinking about God all the time thing? That's tough. Um, The beauty of this practice is that you get to sort of put a toe in and just give it a shot. You do not have to become an expert overnight. It takes a long time, and the practicing itself can become a beautiful, fun thing when we begin to give it a shot and when we practice faithfully you will begin to find yourself more effortlessly on the couch with god so to speak the more and the more that you practice and we're going to embark on this practice with this wonderful sort of guiding tool called the examine its full name is actually the examination of consciousness which i think sounds way cooler but we're shortening it to the practice of the examine which is really just about seizing an awareness Of the fact that you are placed in the midst of your experiences right and then you sort of rummage around and discover God in all your experiences because in the beginning it's hard for you to simply acknowledge it in real time effortlessly you have to actually do the work so it may seem strange to some of you But you might think of it a bit like training wheels to start you on the long road to ongoing contemplation, what Dallas Willard was talking about, when the needle of the compass constantly returns to north on its own. This is about learning to remember God. And in the beginning, it takes disciplines. It takes techniques and practice. When I take a seat on the couch next to my wife and we sit down to watch Friends or just be there while we're both reading or whatever... She can usually tell if my mind is wildly committed to other things, even if we're not really doing a ton of talking. If I'm not there in the moment or if I'm nervous or anxious, then she knows. In fact, uh, one reason traditionally throughout church history that the gatherings, the church gatherings begin with worship, is to properly frame the reason that we have a community in the first place. We get to slow down and be here rather than anywhere else when our hearts and our minds are off in different places framing that time is about remembering that you're here and nowhere else so this week you'll join with your communities and you'll learn the five steps of the examine if you're not in a community yet and you want to join us you can go to practicingtheway.org grab a friend or two and you can absolutely start trying it either way there's five steps and they're really basic really simple and really beautiful first thing that you're going to do is that you pray for light. And this is just a way that you ask with humility that God would make himself known, that he would reveal his presence, that we wouldn't overlook him, that he would provide a light, so to speak, through the darkness of our distractions and our busyness, and that we might see him well. So you're essentially just asking God that you'd be able to hear and see him during this time. That's step one. The second step is that you sort through the moments that preceded this time of prayer, whether it's just a few hours or the day or two before that, and you examine those events and you look for God's presence. Perhaps he was overlooked in the moment, but it's not too late to find him in your memory and to still experience him in those experiences. So the the third step is to select a single moment from those experiences that you've just sort of sorted through in your memory and Find one where you felt the strongest sense of God upon examination. Maybe you didn't feel it in the moment, but when you look back at it, you can see God there. Maybe it's like a moment with your spouse or with your kids that was lovely or a sunset or, you know, a kind word from a friend or a memory that came to your mind or looking through a rainy window, whatever it is for you. Uh, and and you, when you look back and you see God in that moment, take note of that particular moment and sort of take it aside, organize it, and, and examine that memory. That drew a particular response whether that response was good or bad maybe it's joy or it's surprise or it could even be something bittersweet or it could be despair and take hold of that moment with careful inspection what does it mean why did it elicit the response that it did why did i feel joyful about this or upset about this and then the fourth step is that you seize the moment of particular response and you bring it to jesus so to speak and you ask him what do you think about this Have you felt this way? Do you understand this? What does this mean for me? Remember, Jesus was a human with real emotional experiences. Perhaps he could bring your mind to a particular story from the text of his life, and perhaps you'll go there and you'll find solidarity with Jesus himself. That's happened to me before. Or you'll relate to him and know him better and be like, wow, we shared an experience. Perhaps. You'll experience something that's not necessarily from the text, but it's more like a sensation of solidarity with God. Yes, I know what it's like to suffer the way that you know what it's like to suffer. Yes, I know what it's like to feel joy the way that it's like for you to feel joy. Maybe God will speak a word or a phrase into your imagination or deposit a series of images into your imagination. And then the final step is just to say thanks. Thank God for the special moment in which we are allowed to know God better, to know what He's like through Jesus, who is like us, human, filled with emotions and now close to god you get to sit with him and know him better think of it a little bit like sitting down with a loved one going through a memory that you shared together remember that time that we did this realizing that you had a shared emotional connection in that moment and just enjoying that wow yeah we we know each other better now we're better friends for having talked about that for looking at that together and you get to sit with god and know him better you're learning to experience all of your life with god this is what this is all about eventually this practice is a retrospective thing right you're looking at memories and you're mining out god's presence but what this practice will do in retrospect will become the way your mind begins to function in the moment once you've trained yourself to do so like many learned disciplines in a variety of apprenticeships this gets easier over time recognizing god in the present will become easier connecting with him in the moment will become second nature it will become a default setting and like many disciplines when we're in practice it becomes more and more natural as you go when you slip out of practice it takes a little bit of work to get back into it Uh, my friend Katie that I mentioned earlier reminded that though our relationship with God is obviously unique in all the world there's nothing like it for one God isn't a visible audible person that sits across from you on the couch and talks to you or you feel his shoulder Um, But God doesn't make himself deliberately complicated in terms of accessibility. He's not doing this to frustrate you or to test you or to uh, be coy. Like any relationship, God is unique. And relationships take work and they take practice. But it's also so much better than any other relationship or really any other thing that you can possibly imagine. I don't know about you guys, but I want... I know that that's not me yet. I know that I have a long way to go, and I'm ready to utilize any tool at my disposal to have that kind of thing that Brother Lawrence was talking about, to be washing dishes in a crowded, noisy kitchen with people yelling across me at both ways and feeling the presence of God as if it were unavoidable. I want that in my life.